Would you open God's precious holy word to 1 Samuel chapter 2? We'll look at the first 10 verses tonight. <clears throat> God has been gracious enough to let me preach all the way through the Bible in my first 40 something years of preaching twice. I ended the second time since I got here. And so I started the third time through and I may have said this before. The first time I preached through the Bible, <clears throat> much younger pastor, preacher, all I could see was the perfection of the scriptures, the inerrancy of it. In my studies, it was those, those were pre-internet days. And so research and, and uh, looking things up, investigations were a little more challenging. Had to spend a lot of money on books. But there's not anything in the Bible that can be challenged as far as being false. People do it all the time. Uh, but they're, they're in very gross error and they're coming at it from a biased mindset. And when you take them to the original Hebrew or the original Greek, you can show them how ridiculous their argument is. Uh, and then there have been those who have tried to challenge the Bible historically or, or other ways. It simply can't be done. And that's what I marveled at. I suppose it took me about 16 years, maybe a little longer, to preach through the Bible the first time, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Second time I started preaching through the Bible, all I could see was Christ on every page. He was in every he was in every name of every place. He was in every genealogy. He was, he was in every miracle, whether it was in the Old Testament or the New Testament. And I saw Christ on every page. Now I've started preaching through the Bible the third time, and all I can see is the sovereignty of God. Absolutely sovereign. The sovereignty of God, I say this with reverential awe and great respect for humankind as far as, the, as far as humans should be respected. And for the and for the viewpoints of others. But as I in 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 regard to my with regard to my own experience. It's very interesting to me that the absolute sovereignty of God was not the first thing I concluded. That's not a natural thing to come to. That God is in absolute authority over everything. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are, when you are, what you are. It doesn't matter what's happening in the world. It doesn't matter if it's on any continent. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. God is in control. He is he is moving everything according to his plan and purpose and according to his will and his will overrides the will of man. And so it should be, right? God's will, good grief. So I say this, it takes a lot of personal reflection. It takes personal experience. It takes experience in deep valleys it takes experience in life as a Christian to be in situations that seem inescapable 
and impossible to overcome. It takes, it takes time and life experience and faith in the Word of God. And then a study, an ongoing continual study of the Word of God to come into that place of respect and surrender, respect for and surrender to the sovereignty of God. When I was a child and I was saved, I suppose my theological perspective would have been something like this. God did a whole lot and I did a little bit because I came and, you know, I did this. And as I've moved through life and have spent my life studying the Word of God, you know, it starts out like it's, uh, it's, it's a whole lot of God and some of me. But in the course of time, you come to realize it was all of God and none of me. And then you marvel at how God, or I did, I marvel at how God has called me into his salvation according to a plan that he has, according to a plan that he established. The Bible says from before the foundation of the world, the word foundation means, uh, the word foundation means blueprints. It's another word for, it's kind of an architectural term. Before, before the blueprints were made of every molecule and every atomic, subatomic particle, laws of physics before anything was, before time and space, before, before, the, before the floor plan and the blueprint, <laughs> the Bible language tells me that I was always part of God's plan. Me personally, not just, not just generically, all of those who are in Christ. No, no. Myself, personally, I was there in that book. And God has moved all of time, even angels and demonic powers and everything else, to, to love me, to save me, to love me, and to carry me through life. And in the dark experiences to make me experience, to make me understand even more how great he is and how little I am, which, which more greatly expands my heart for worship and praise and marvel at a loving God who, who has established himself from where he is to where I am. I couldn't go from here to there. He had to go from there to here or come from there to here. And it, it marvels me. It, it astounds me that I have this personal connection, a covenant, a personal covenant that God has established in salvation. Now, this is the foundation of what I want to preach about tonight because this is Hannah. She was no theological giant, nor am I. I'm just a student of the Bible, I'll tell you. You grow a lot just by studying the scriptures. Spiritually, you grow. You always... I have to think about this. I have no way of remembering how many times I have read the Bible all the way through. 
I've preached every word of it for three times, which means that I spent a great deal of time studying the sections, the, 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 the language, the, the words, uh, the, the voice tense and mood of the original text and all of that, the foundation, foundational and the stem and root of words and all, which greatly expands even more your love and appreciation for the scripture. But I suppose just having read the Bible through maybe 20 times, I don't know, maybe 20 times, maybe more than that, I don't know. So I have, I have grown in all that. But now here's Hannah. She has in her lifetime the books of Moses. That's her Bible. And yet for all that is in the Torah, the, the, the books of Moses... And a woman in that culture, of course, was less than a man. She was pretty much the property of her husband. He loved her. We saw that in chapter one. He had great love and respect for her and he took care of her. And he did his best to make sure that she hadn't lost any of her self-esteem over the fact that she didn't have any children. But it was still a crushing experience for her in her life that she had never borne him a son. She had never had a child. And so you know how chapter one goes. She, she, she prays before the Lord in the tabernacle where the high priest, the priesthood were. And she prays to God for a son and she vows to give him back. Just let me have this son. He, you, you'll have him. I'll give him back to you. Just let me have this son. So. It makes me appreciate, at least to some degree, the priesthood who would have taught certain things to her husband and then to her every time they went to, a, to make a sacrifice or to appreciate and indulge in one of the feasts that were part of their, their worship in that day. So she had a great understanding of a lot of things, but the Holy Spirit of God, of course, this is inspired scripture that we're looking at. So the Holy Spirit of God in a spiritual way is opening her mind and her heart to who he is. So if you think in an unknown and against the backdrop of history, here's a woman who was not really important in the eyes of the world, very important to God. History doesn't record the things that were going on in and around that area because there were so many other things going on in greater places, you know. There was, there was uh, of course, Egypt. And this is the end of the time of the judges. So the Philistines were very, were very powerful. And there were other city-states that were in development that were very powerful, especially in Greece. But God is focused on this woman who otherwise is just unimportant. She's even less than important because in her culture, in her day, she had not produced a child. That was a shameful thing for her. But in her prayer and her faith and in the work of God and the purpose of God, he opens her mind to the fact 
that nothing is impossible with God. And as a matter of fact, nothing, not one thing happens without the direction and providence of God. And we see this in this, in this prayer. But more than calling this section Hannah's prayer, I call it Hannah's God. Because it isn't Hannah who's the star of these 10 verses. It's Hannah's God. So let's look at it here. First of all, he gives her faith. Faith is a gift from God. We're taught that in the Bible. So it starts out like this. Hannah, her name means grace. So what a beautiful thing to connect grace to the truth of the sovereignty of God. And Hannah prayed and said, my heart has rejoiced in Yahweh. My horn has been exalted in Yahweh. That is her strength, her personal strength. In the Old Testament imagery, the horn is the symbol of personal strength. If it's a king or a state, then it speaks of national power. In this case, it's personal. It speaks of her personal strength. Her personal strength has been exalted. I mean, she had lost her self-esteem. She was, she was feeling mighty low. My mouth is opened wide against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Panina, the other wife of Elkanah, chided Hannah because she's the one who had all the kids, you know. Hannah didn't have any. So she had adversaries, especially that particular person. But she said, you know what? I rejoice in your salvation. She is a woman of faith because God gave her faith. He now gives her a sense of self-esteem in what he's doing in her life. We should always walk humbly before the Lord. But to say that we have self-esteem does not mean that we're no longer humble. It means that we're beginning to gain an appreciation for the truth that God created us for something and he's going to do something with us that is meaningful to his overall purpose. So he re she rejoices in the salvation of God. She has faith. Now God makes her realize that there is none like Yahweh. She lives in another day when people worshiped National and local deities, gods and goddesses. But they couldn't have an appreciation for their particular god or goddess until and unless they had carved it out, made an image of it, had to make something out of wood or, or stone. And, and, and then they just became demonic. They were de demon possessed and, and they became crazed in the ways that they worshiped these gods and goddesses and what they called worship. But now she comes to realize that there is none like Yahweh. No one is holy like Yahweh. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. A rock in the language of the Old Testament is a fortress. It's an impenetrable place. It is a safe place. God brings us to himself and there's nothing safer, no place more safe than where God is. So he is a rock to her. 
There's no rock like our God. Now in the next several verses, she's made to realize that Yahweh is sovereign. He's a God of knowledge, a God of judgment, and a God of providence. Now let me say this. Sovereignty means that God knows and God uses his power of judgment to carry out his rules and plan plans that are providential. Do not increasingly speak haughtily. Let not arrogance come out of your mouth for Yahweh is El. Yahweh is God of our thoughts or our knowledge. Now think about that. Hana, Hana is praying and she's praying inspired words that are inspired by God because it's in our Bible. And she teaches us, the Holy Spirit through her teaches us, Yahweh is God of our thoughts, God of our knowledge. By Him, actions are regulated or, or balanced. He has that power. His will will be done. Jesus will come again. There will be a kingdom. There will be a great mass of throngs and multitudes who through the ages of humanity have been called out to God and separated by the power of God to his salvation. And they're increasingly, we will increasingly be outfitted and strengthened for worship and praise and even greater understanding into the ages of the ages. How can God at the end of the book say that all that's going to happen? Because he regulates everything. He balances it. He's God. We don't recognize that over, you know, long, but then as we move into the understanding of the great power and sovereignty of God, not only do we become more humble and our thoughts of God are greater and our thoughts of ourselves are, are such that we are made to see, be less in our own sight, which is a good thing. But it, it causes us to have an explosive spirit of worship and praise because the reason for the beginning of the Bible is the end of the Bible. Someone, and I don't like to get too deep about this because it's just something people have to work. You have to work out your own salvation. But I know on a particular occasion, someone was discussing with me when I was talking about God's wonderful provision of election. Well, what about the others? I, I can't answer. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. And I don't know who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved because, because all of creation is not finally at the end of all things going to worship and glorify me. It's not my plan. It's God's plan. And it's to his worship, glory, and honor. But I made this point. I said, you know, I don't like to speak for the reprobate. I don't know who they are. And I'm, I don't, I'm not God. But I can tell you this, and this is an example of how God works. You know, there's one guy in the Bible 
who may or may not already be alive. But even if he's not alive yet, he's already damned to hell as the Antichrist. For all of these decades and centuries, this awful, horrible person has been identified. And we had that Bible before that guy was ever born. Now, my thoughts are he may be running around here somewhere today. Just hasn't been energized to reveal. But I said all that to say this. God has the power to regulate and balance everything because God has said, this is the way it is. It's going to be. And in the revelation especially, it is all to his glory and honor. All the power, all the glory, all the honor be unto God, our great God, our Lord. Hannah, one would think, was just a simple-minded woman who, and when I say simple-minded, I don't mean that disrespectfully. I mean that she had a singular focus. She loved her husband, and she wanted to provide a child. She, she didn't claim to be a, a priest or a prophetess or anything important. She just was before God. And God gives her this great knowledge. The bows of the mighty are broken. On Saturday, February the 1st, if the Lord hasn't come and I'm still alive and I haven't been run off, You don't understand, Southern Baptist pastors just have to live with that, you know. You don't, you don't want to make too much of an investment in what might be two months down the road. On Saturday, February the 1st at 9 o'clock, we'll probably close, at noon, close out at noon. I'm going to teach a session on Saturday, inviting everybody in the community. It's in the Somerville newsletter. And I call the study the demise of and fall, the decline and fall of the United States of America, a biblical perspective. We're going to see from the scriptures. Now, the United States of America, I don't think, is in prophecy as the United States of America. But I do believe that what the United States of America is spiraling downward into... Because of what happened to the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel was not a theocracy. They were people born out of a Bible-believing group of people. The United States of America as a nation was born from the efforts and hearts and governance of people who believed in Jesus and who came here to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's written history. People deny it. They don't want to teach it, but it is. So we're not a theocracy either. But when certain barriers are crossed and principles are violated and sin runs rampant and unchecked, the only thing left is judgment. Now, I'm making a point here out of the first phrase of verse 4. The bows of the mighty are broken. 
Superpower, superpower. We arrogate ourselves with a title, superpower. Super economy, super military, super this, super that. With all of those missiles and satellites and stuff won't mean a thing if the hearts of the people melt and are collapsed into grievous sin. And that bow will be broken by Almighty God. It's happened in history so many times you can't number it. So following the truth of God that he regulates and balances the actions. It's his prerogative to break the bows of the mighty. And those who stumbled are girded with strength. Some thought this person is weak. God gives them strength. This is what he's doing for Hannah. She is a, an example. The one who had all the strength in her life was put into that other wife of Elkanah. And she's the one who is weak and stumbled. But God girds her with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. They became poor. God can do that. And the hungry have ceased to hunger. God can do that. The barren woman is born seven and she who has many children has been exhausted or, or made to be feeble. Yahweh kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. From a human perspective, God would laugh at our definition of strength and weakness. Those are meaningless to him. He gives us strength as we want it or brings upon us weakness according to his divine sovereign plan. Yahweh impoverishes. He also makes rich. He humbles, but he also exalts. He lifts the poor from the dust, from the dunghill. Your Bible may say the ash heap or something like that. It's where... That's a dunghill. He raises the pauper to seat him with princes. And a seat of honor he causes them to inherit. For the pillars of the earth are Yahweh's. They belong to him. And he has set the earth upon them. I'm thinking in verse 8. Raises a pauper, seats them with princes. Somebody claims to inherit a throne or a seat of honor, but God owns the pillars of the earth that hold everything up. And I'm, you know, you can't escape it. It just happens two or three times a week when you read news. There's always something in there about the royal family. And may I say, from a biblical perspective, they're a bunch of fools. Who would want a life like that? And they think so highly, you know, and the press 
says all of these things, and yet anybody in his right mind just sort of feels kind of sorry for these people. That's no kind of life. I remember when Diana, Diana, whatever her name was, got married to Charles, Prince Charles. He had about five first names. But he didn't have a last name. And the guy on TV said he could give her everything but a last name. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Anyway. That's meaningless to God. He could flip that upside down anytime he wants to. If it works to his plan and purpose, it stays in place. But if not, if not, he'll raise a pauper. The pillars of the earth are Yahweh's and he has set the earth upon them. The feet of his saints he will guard. But the wicked shall be silent in darkness for no man will prevail by strength. We have this great promise of protection. We must be humble and faithful, not proud and arrogant and thankful. You know, Romans chapter one talks about the demise of a great society and the, the beginning factor, the thing that started it all was thanklessness, ingratitude. You don't thank God for, you wouldn't have anything. You wouldn't have air to breathe, water to clean water. You wouldn't have food, wouldn't have shelter. Just think about it. I read one time where the United States of America is probably two paychecks away from total poverty. EMP bomb comes along and everybody loses power. What you going to do? We're all going to go over to Bruce's place and get some deer meat is what we're going to do. <laughs> You're my buddy. <laughs> God can flip things upside down in any way he wants to. But look at this. He guards the feet of his saints because no man prevails by strength. We live and we walk by faith, being humble before God. Hannah knew this. At the end of all things, the purpose of Yahweh will be achieved. Look at this. The adversaries of Yahweh will be broken in pieces. Now, how could anybody say that except from the inspiration of a sovereign God? <clears throat> Only God could say that. He will thunder against them from heaven. Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. How did Hannah know that there were the ends of the earth? And he will give strength to his king. See, this is where it's all headed. Everything that's happening, well, they've had a, was it a NATO meeting recently? I can't keep up with these meeting. NATO meeting and they meet. They're going to have plans. I guess, well, they should. Congress is doing its thing. They all, they all got plans. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter to the believer. We walk humbly with our God because all of this Gentile stuff that's happening and that has happened through the ages is simply carrying us to a single point so that finally God will have collected and gathered out of all of the ages of humankind and, and history his own 
that we might serve his anointed one. That word is, a, that word is Christ, anointed one. That's the, the Greek word for that would be Christ. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his Christ. This is where we're headed. That's the end of it all. That's the only thing that matters to us. Things get bad. Okay. Things have gotten bad in times past. Things are good. Things have been good in times past. God is working it out for his glory as he sees fit. But at the end of it all, all of the strength is to his king. And all of the exaltation <coughs> is to the power of his Christ. Hannah prays this beautiful prayer, extolling the attributes, characteristics, and person of a sovereign God, the sovereign God, who cares for us. We'll stop there and we'll have our deacon prayer time.